whenever I tell you to find your seats, I always feel like I'm breaking up a party, like I'm that guy, because y'all are all talking, and I really don't want to be that guy. But God's Word is very important, friends. So, starting this week and for the next eight weeks, which will take us out to the very end of Pastor Blake's sabbatical, we're doing a sermon series on grace. This is something that I've wanted to do since we landed in Oklahoma. And with Blake being gone, we get to do it. So I'm very excited about that. Why? But why? Grace does change everything. I believe pretty firmly that you and I struggle in very similar ways in that when you think about your standing practically, not theologically, but practically before God, you feel quite often that you never measure up. That you haven't done enough. Maybe you've done too much bad things. And this is evidenced by our, conti- our continual struggle with guilt and with shame. And that's ubiquitous. And the only thing that I have seen in the hundreds of thousands of pages of theology books is that the grace of God is the only thing that will change us, that will change that view. Now, when the Bible talks about grace, I want to I be very clear what we mean when we talk about grace, okay? And I'm going to con- contrast it with two other words. I'm going to look at justice, going to look at mercy, and going to look at grace. Justice is getting what you deserve. For instance, you steal a car, you go to jail, okay? Mercy is not getting what you deserve, okay? For instance, you steal a car, you don't get put in jail. But grace is getting what we don't deserve. For instance, you steal a car, the owner gives you another car, and you don't go to jail. Donald Barnhouse, you saw it in the preparation for worship, Bible scholar, teacher, he says, love that goes upward is worship, love that goes outward is affection, but love that stoops is grace. One early church father said that grace is the crown jewel of Christianity. So with that being the case, we're going to turn to today's text, the parable of the prodigal son, and we're going to look at it about this parable, Charles Dickens, the author of The Christmas Carol, I mean, many books. He says this is the greatest short story ever written. So if you would, if you're willing and able, please stand as we look at this greatest short story ever written. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near to him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners 
and eats with them. And he said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and it began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving, him any, no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men? have more than enough bread, but I'm dying here of hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. And felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring, to the, fat, and bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead. And has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, your brother has come. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he, was received, because he received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I have been serving you. And I have never neglected a command of yours. And yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live, and he was lost, and he has been found. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Nearly 15 years ago, in October of 2004, I sat in a room with maybe 20 other people going through a new members class in my very first PCA church. The associate pastor was leading it, and he was talking about what it means to be a Christian. And he read this verse from Isaiah 64, 
We all have become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. And he said, this word polluted garment, literally in the Hebrew means a garment of menstruation. That is what your good deeds are. They're worthless. I agreed with him. Someone there did not. A man of about 65 began to question the associate pastor and he said, wait, you're telling me that all of these years that I've been a faithful husband, that all of these years that I've been a deacon in my own church, that all of the time that I've spent serving the church, that all the time that I've spent being a good father and a grandfather, you're telling me that that won't get me into heaven? The associate pastor said, that's exactly what I'm telling you. At this point, the man became furious, began yelling, stood up, pointing his finger at the associate pastor. And of course, I was enjoying the show because he wasn't yelling at me. And he got so furious, he took his chair, swung it up against the wall, and walked out. And his poor wife was so apologetic. Um, and they left, and we never saw them again. It was a very fun new members class. What it illustrated, though, was it's possible to be in church a long time and not understand that this entire thing, friends, is about grace. So this morning, we're going to look at this passage. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at three characteristics of the Father's grace and then three observations about you and me as we appear in the passage. So beginning with the three observations about the Father's grace, the first thing that we observe here is that the Father's grace is passionate. Look at verse 20. Before verse 20, this young man who had already requested his share of the inheritance, which at this time would have been about a third of his, proper, his father's property, and this isn't money in the bank, the only real wealth this time was found in lands. So in order for this son to get his inheritance, the father had had to sell about a third of his land, his livestock, everything. So however long that takes, it happened. The son goes off, he squanders it on loose living, realizes that he's in a very bad situation because he is, he is coveting the pig's food. And he concocts this plan to come back to the father. At this time, here were, the, here were the two common things that would have happened if the son came back after something like this. One, he would have been killed. Or two, he would have been a slave. And then look at verse 20. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Look at the things that the father's doing here. The first thing he sees him. You know what that means? 
It means that the father was watching for him. It means that he was watching for him actively. After bringing shame upon him and upon the family, the father's watching for him and he sees him. And then he feels compassion. He runs to him, embraces him, and kisses him. I find it interesting that looking at my own heart and hearing from you, a lot of the time in our Christian life, the truth is that we feel like God is kind of up there and relatively disinterested. Kind of up there chilling out. If we do something good, he might give us a little grin, do something bad, and kind of give us a frown, but he's kind of up there acting like that. You, you know what the problem that that is? That is not at all how the Bible describes God. Here, the description is very intense. He sees him, he feels compassion, he runs to him, embraces him, kisses him. This is something that most fathers, however his age is, whether it's 40 or 60, don't even do to their own sons. If you're over 40, when's the last time you ran to your son and kissed him? His grace is passionate. The second observation about the father's grace is this, is that it's interrupting. So we saw in the text, and you can see it, a little before, uh, on starting with verse 18, when he begins to rehearse this line. He says, Father, I've sinned against... Here's what I'm going to say. Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he has his rehearsed lines, right? You guys understand what this is like. I do this often in marriage when, when I've made a jerk out of myself Say, okay, I'm going to go to my wife, and I'm going to say, honey, or sweetheart, or, you know, whatever pet name there is, baby, baby. I mean, there's lots of different things that we could go here, but, like, say, I'm sorry for doing X, Y, and Z. It was wrong. Will you forgive me? Right? We rehearse lines in our head all the time. He's just, it's so bad, he's rehearsing lines out loud. And then what happens? Look at verses 21 and 22. He got up and came to his father. While he was a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion, ran, embraced, and kissed him. And his son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. That's it. That's it. He did not get to say, make me one of your hired men. In other words, make me a slave. Because the Father's grace here is interrupting. Because immediately the Father says, quickly, bring out the best robe. The Son was about to say it. Make me as one of your slaves. And the Father stopped him from saying that. Why? Why? Because the son is a son is a son. This passage 
If you grew up like me, this passage was about the Christian, and the younger brother was the non-Christian, right? We got to go give the gospel to non-Christians and see them saved and return back. What's the problem with that? The problem is that the younger brother, he started out as a son. He started out as a son. He didn't start out as some random guy. He was already a son. And because of that, because, because his grace is interrupting, it is never appropriate, apparently, in this father's house that the son be a slave. Even after grave disobedience, even after shame brought up on the family, he is still a son. He will never be a slave. What does this illustrate for us? It illustrates this, that your sin does not have the last word. His grace does. You might be thinking, you know what? Yeah, but you, you don't know what I've done, Scott. I've been, just messed up so much. And you know what he does? He interrupts your past disobedience, your present concern over your past disobedience, and says, look at me because you are my child. You will never be a slave. His grace is interrupting. What's the third characteristic that we see about his grace? Verses 22 and 23, But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet, bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. The third characteristic is that his grace is unconditional. The father welcomes home the sinner in outlandish fashion. And notice what you have here too. You have something that's really different from how you and I interact on a normal basis. There was no penance required. There was no apology required. Imagine if one of your children takes and loses one-third of everything that you have. You'd expect an apology, right? Maybe. I probably would. If my son burned down my kitchen because he was being childish, I'd expect him to say, Daddy, I'm sorry about burning down your kitchen. And I'd kind of be waiting on him to say that. What does the father do here? He's not waiting for an apology. Before his son can say anything, he is running, not walking, not trotting. The text is running toward him. And, he, and it says he embraces him. Literally, he fell on his neck and is kissing him. That's what grace looks like. There's no penance. It's not, hey, if you say you're sorry, then I'll be kind to you. Yeah, Abraham Lincoln has a really great example of this. Someone after the war, after the Civil War, once said to him, um, once asked him, like, how are you going to deal 
with these rebellious Southerners when they return to the Union. And you know what he said? He said, I'll treat them as if they had never left. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Here's the problem. You and I, we're not inclined that way. We're inclined to, to be transactional and conditional. For instance, you want, you want God to be gracious to you. So, we begin to think, not really kind of at the forefront of our mind, kind of in the recesses of our mind, it's like, well, I need to, if I really want God to work in me and be gracious to me, here's what I need to do. I need to pray more. I need to quiet time more. By the way, quiet time was only invented like in the last 150 or 200 years. I need to, I need to give more. I need to serve more. I need to blank. Just fill in the blank in order for God to really be gracious to me. Here's what grace actually looks like. Squander every good gift that you have, bring shame upon his name, and return to a party in your favor. Why would he do that? Because his grace is unconditional. His grace is unconditional. So if we're to look at all of this together, just the three characteristics we see of the Father's grace, his grace is passionate. He is not dispassionate towards you, Christian. His grace is interrupting. His grace is unconditional. When you picture your Father in heaven, do you picture him that way? Because it's true. There's three observations about the Father's grace. Now, where might we see ourselves in this? We're going to make three observations here. The first one is this. You and I, we, we attempt to get what we want in one of two ways. If you identify with the younger brother, younger brothers disobey the father in order to get what they want. If you identify with the older brother, you're kind of the rule follower. Older brothers obey the father to get what they want. Right? So look at verse 12. We see the younger brother doing this. He says, Father, give me the share of the property that's coming to me. In other words, give me a 100% advance on my inheritance. And the older brother, in verse 29, says, Look, all these many years I've served you, and I never disobeyed one of your commands, yet you never even gave me a young goat. And the younger brother got a fattened calf. I'd rather have a fattened calf than a young goat, too. And he said, you didn't even give me a goat. What does that show us? It shows us that both of these brothers have a big problem. They both wanted the father's stuff, but not the father himself. 
They both wanted the father's stuff, but they didn't want the father. The younger brother disobeyed in order to get what he wanted. The older brother obeyed. Not to please the father, not to get... He wanted simply a young goat. Or to be recognized as being an older brother who is a wonderful man or anything like that. Both of them, through disobedience and obedience, are seeking life outside of the Father. When his presence should have been enough. And that hits us in this way. I'll just ask you the question. Why do you want to be a Christian? Do you want to be a Christian because it's respectable? Do you want to be a Christian because it's noble? Because you think it's the most logically consistent religion? Do you want to be a Christian because it makes your life better? Or do you want to be a Christian because that's the only way you get the Father? There's this strange Americanized conception of what heaven is. I had a pastor one time. She goes, oh, yeah, you know, I think heaven's just, she loved playing golf, and she goes, I think heaven's just endless golf courses. And at the time, I thought, how boring, because I didn't play golf. Golf's not, anyways, some of you golf, and that's okay. What's the thing about heaven? The thing about heaven is, Our God is there. The rest of the things, it doesn't matter what it is. It could be rainbows and unicorns and woolly mammoths and candy and all of that doesn't amount to anything because the Father is there. You and I have this strange proclivity to either disobey or obey in order to get what we want when it's not about disobeying or or obeying. It's about your desires. Do you want all the blessings of the Christian life or whatever it may be, or do you want the Father himself? So that's number one. We attempt to get what we want in two ways, through both obedience and disobedience. Uh, Let's look at this next observation. Number two, we attempt to find, or we attempt two ways to find happiness. We attempt two ways to find happiness. And you see this in the brothers. The younger brother, we can call him a man of self-discovery, right? You could hear him even today saying, if I'm true to myself and what I want, then I'll be happy. He's going about life in the mode of self-discovery. The older brother is going about life as a moral conformist. If I do what's expected of me, then I'll be happy. The problem with both of these guys is they're both alienated from the Father. They're both lost. You see see this in the older brother. The older brother, he was just, he was hanging out, obeying, doing exactly what his father commanded. However long the younger brother was, he was there, he was being faithful younger brother comes back, and he is ticked off. I 
What's interesting about the passage is that it stops where it does. We know that the younger brother goes off and he squanders all of this wealth, comes back and is received, received back to the father so graciously. Then the younger brother gets super upset about it. But then the story ends there. We don't know what happens to the older brother. We don't. And if you look at the gospel accounts, the only people in the gospel accounts that Jesus was harsh with were people like the older brother. Jesus hung out with younger brother types all the time, right? He hung out with prostitutes. He hung out with tax collectors. People called him a glutton and a drunkard because of the people that he hung out with. He did not like the Pharisees or the Sadducees. You know why? Because they were the older brother. They were the ones standing there. This man eats with sinners and receives them. We've been here the whole time obeying the law, and he's going after those people. That's the only people that Jesus is harsh with. It's people like that. If you find yourself hating, hating grace for others or not being gracious toward others, it's always, always, always because you're not realizing the Father's grace toward you first. You know, Mark Twain has this great line. He said, um, heaven goes by favor or by grace. If it went by merit, you would stay out and your dog would get in. If you find yourself, either out loud or in your head, always griping about other people's behavior or their language or their anything, it's important to know, number one, you are an older brother. You are an older brother. Number two, you have such high demands of others because when they interact with you, they interact with someone who embraces rules rather than grace. If they fail to meet your relational rules, fine, no grace for them. I mean, the Father can give them grace, but but you're not. And the third, and this is kind of what we see at the end of the parable, if you're the older brother, you're actually opposite of the father. You know what that older brother should have done in the parable? He should have dropped what he's doing. He should have been right behind his father, running after that younger brother to receive him back. Do you know who make the worst older brothers? Christians. Those of us in this room. Because it's really easy. Even I'll just share about myself. I remember becoming a Christian. Kind of over the process between high school and college. I became a Christian. Within two years, I was unbearably self-righteous. 
unbearably. I think many times we don't realize this in ourselves. That we have this self-righteousness that's just oozing out of our pores because we're Christians. I don't speak that way. Well, I don't watch that movie. I don't do X, Y, and Z. And Jesus is saying, yeah, but you should be hanging out with people who do. That's what I did. It's very obvious in us, like, we try to find happiness by disobeying. I think it's a much more subtle and omnipresent disease of us trying to find happiness through obedience. Not through true obedience, but I mean kind of a self-righteous obedience, right? So that's the second observation. We attempt to find happiness in one of two ways, either through self-discovery or moral conformity. And we got to be very careful, very careful to make sure that we're not acting like either the younger brother or the older brother. So here's the third one. We'll wrap up with this. The third observation about us, whether you're a younger brother or an older brother, there's only one way to the Father. And that's to embrace the gospel of grace. There's only one way to the Father. What they both need to see and embrace is the Father and his grace. Look, here's what the younger son should have said. I've squandered my father's presence by attempting to throw off his authority. And I believe, I believe that the father runs to, embraces, kisses, and rejoices in unworthy sinners like me. The older brother should have said, I've been obeying the whole time. But in truth, I've been neglecting his presence. That I've used my obedience as a substitute for the Father's presence. But I believe that the Father loves and offers grace even to neglectful and angry people like me. The word prodigal actually means wastefully extravagant, spending freely. D.A. Carson, Bible scholar, says, there's more than one way to run away from God and defy him, but there's only one way back. God himself is so prodigal in his grace that he reaches out to humble and to restore and to receive both brothers. Friend, do you expect to receive grace from him? Who else can drown our faults, our rebellion, in an ocean of grace? So the answer for us, then, is to run. Not walk to run back to the Father. Because if you're in Jesus, he is running after you. Let's pray. Father, we ask that we would see you as you are. Not as we perceive ourselves and not as we perceive you, but that we would see you just like this.
unconditionally gracious to those that you call your own. Help that to change us so that we would be neither the younger son nor the older son, but maybe the third son who stays close to you and cherishes you. Through Jesus we pray, amen.